Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Almost every single practice that people tell you to do for every person who claimed it was the cause of their success, there's a thousand people who will never be able to have a voice. There's a thousand people who tried exactly that practice and failed to achieve the result. So it's not necessarily a causation. Maybe it's a correlation. Maybe it's a coincidence. And so we're not good at being uh, critical thinkers. And I think that's a really important thing is to just understand that distinction between causation, correlation, and coincidence. And we tend not to do that. And that leads us then to context, which is uh, there's never a one-size-fits-all strategy. Anybody who tells you, go do this, I would immediately be skeptical of what they say. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Steve, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, fantastic to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was uh, mentioning to you before we hit record, I came across your work uh, inside of Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, who was uh, a former guest here, actually our first guest this year. Um, and when I saw the whole idea of goal-free living, I thought, oh my God, this flies in the face of every idea and personal development that I've ever come across. I have to talk to this guy. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Wow. Uh, I think one of the things which has been extremely influential is my dad always said, everything happens for a reason. Mm. And he didn't mean that in some kind of uh, mystical way, like there's a plan in the universe. It was really more just a lens. Uh, you know, if whatever happens to you doesn't seem like it's good, well, let's look for the silver lining in it. Because if you take the time to look for it, then you find what's good. And and I've found that actually has worked really well for me throughout my life is anytime I have a setback, I just try to look for the silver lining in everything. 
Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's fascinating. You know, so one is, I wonder how that has shaped, you know, influences and in, actions in your life and moments in your life where, you know, you've had bad things happen because, you know, the reality is bad things happen to good people all the time. That's just part of life. Um, but the other thing I, I appreciate that you said was that he didn't say it as some sort of mystical new age bullshit nonsense. Like he just said it in a very practical way. So how do you separate the sort of mystical new age version of that from the practical real version of that, because I think that that's a trap that people get stuck in and it just gives them an excuse to sit on their ass. <laughs> well, I, I think that the key with everything is action. So I, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer that you just sort of visualize something and everything is going to manifest itself. I think you could visualize something and then you need to take action. So I really do believe that, you know, life becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy just because at some level, whether it's a subconscious level uh, or not, we start taking actions. We start having conversations. We start doing things that are a little different based on those beliefs that we have. And so that's what, that, that's been my, my strong belief is that if we strongly believe something, it's not that the world is going to conspire to give it to us, but we're going to be taking the action if we get off of our butts, if we every action we take is going to move us in that direction. So I remember one time I, I like really wanted to have a TV show. Now it never actually materialized, but I got really close. I was in the 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 pitching room of some of the biggest networks, and that only came about because people would say, you know, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, and someday I'll have a TV show. And I just threw that out as just a little passing comment, but just throwing that out there, all of a sudden people said, oh well, I know this person, they're a producer or this person. And so I find even just small, subtle changes like that can make a huge, huge impact on the direction you take your life. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you said that you look for the silver lining and everything. Take me to an experience either, you know, growing up or take me to several that, you know, something that was really bad in the moment uh, ended up being good in the long run. Because I think that what I've realized is that we only recognize that something good happened or everything, something bad happened for a reason in retrospect. But in the moment, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to us at this exact moment. Well, I think growing up, I mean, for me, I was a scrawny, nerdy kid. I was in the math club. Uh, I was terrible at sports. I mean, I remembered I'd be like the very last kid to be picked for the uh, kickball team. I mean, I was just terrible. I really was. Uh, but what it did was, you know, the the downside of being a bad athlete was, is that I was like, okay, well, if that's not my strength, if that's not what I'm going to be great at, what will I excel at? And so I put myself into academics. I I did you know, join the math club. I did get actively involved. And I also got actively involved in music, which to me was the most life-changing thing. So uh, I got involved in my my jazz band. And the jazz band in high school and elementary school and everything else was just, it was, it was transformational for my life because first of all, it gave me confidence, but also it gave me a love of the stage. I was in front of thousands of people from the time I was relatively young. And, you know, now that I they're all virtual at the moment, but now that I give speeches for a living, uh, or part of my business is giving speeches in front of very large audiences, I got so comfortable with that. So when I think about, okay, well, I wasn't great at sports, but it turned me on to other activities that really have had a huge impact in my life. Okay. So I, I, you know, it's funny because we must have such a parallel story. I, I played the tuba for nine years and same story, got the shit kicked out of me in a football field on, you know, and in seventh grade in Texas, where there are seventh graders, the size of grown men. Um, so I wonder what instruments did you play? 
Well, I got to say, I was at least a little cooler than the tuba. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the tuba is not very cool. Like, let's be honest. Uh, I, I was a sax player, so at least I had that going for me. But I was also a bassoon player uh, in orchestras, which was not exactly the coolest thing. I was there with my bow tie playing bassoon, but the sax was really my favorite instrument. Yeah. Well, what did you learn from the experience of learning how to play an instrument and becoming good enough at it? Because, you know, I, I realized like the most formative experience of my entire high school career was being in band because I made all state band three years in a row. And I think the thing that it taught me more than anything else was the power of practicing something and developing skills. It's something you have no natural aptitude for. So I wonder, you know, what did you learn from your own experiences of band uh, outside of sort of the, the ability to stand on stage? Because I can relate to that too. Like I don't get nervous in front of an audience. It's just one of those things that was like, I'm a performer. So this is just natural. Um, but what did you learn that you applied to your life going forward? Well, first, for, if people don't know, Allstate's a big deal. So that means you are really, really good. So I just want to say kudos to that. Uh, yeah, for me, what it was is, first of all, being uber shy, uh, it was at least a chance for me to build some social skills, which were very important to me. Uh, so there was that aspect. And it, it was really interesting, too. You know, you talked about the discipline. Well, I'm, I'm not really very good at discipline, but I remember what happened was uh, my parents uh, would say to me, like when I was, I think it was uh, fourth or fifth grade, somewhere around, maybe it was third grade. I, don't, I started playing very early. And my parents were like, look, we are happy. I, was, I think I started off playing in group lessons, taking group lessons with a whole bunch of people. And they said, look, if you really want to get good, you're going to need private lessons. But if you're going to do private lessons, which is going to cost us money, you need to promise us you're going to practice at least three times a week. And my response was, no way. So I didn't take private lessons for a while, but I practiced like, you know, seven days a week for hours a day. And at some point it was like, okay, clearly I'm going to do it. So I'm going to stop fighting. So I learned something about myself, which is I don't like being told what to do. I, I like being able to have sort of my freedom. Uh, wow. And that to me, you know, I, I don't know how that actually influenced me, but it was just a very, very interesting insight to have at a young age to recognize I don't want to be controlled, uh -huh. but I will, you know, do things that I would have done anyway. And that's sort of the crazy thing. So this is always fascinating to me is I wonder why you think that certain people have moments of insight like that at such a young age versus the people who don't. Because I think that, you know, when I look back at college, when I look back at, at most of these experiences, I only realized that, you know, I got profound lessons from them, you know, in retrospect, I didn't see what I was getting at the time. I'm not sure I was that smart to get it at the time. Uh, it, it really is just sort of reflecting back in some cases. But I do know, you know, it comes back to something you, you were saying earlier on is all these decisions, whether we learn them at a conscious level or a subconscious level, do influence the actions, the decisions, uh, the conversations we have and the direction we take with our life. And so I do think those experiences, whether it's uh, you know, and I too got beat up, uh, you know, so you, you put all those different experiences together and they influence us and move us in a direction. And then I guess to me, the big, the big question is always how much of the direction of our life was by design or by default. Mm. Yeah. And I think what happens is in a lot of cases, something happened to us. Therefore we go in a direction which might not be healthy for us as opposed to saying this happened to me. Okay. That was interesting. Um, uh, 
what can I do that's actually going to be a positive thing in my life? You know, because I guess if you get beat up, maybe your response is join a gang or something. I don't know. I mean, there, there's, I'm sure, a lot of different ways people could go. But fortunately, yeah. and that was my parents' influence and the, my friends, you know, my friends were all nerds. And so all those different decisions moving down a particular path. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned the sort of confidence thing that comes from that because I very distinctly remember my ninth grade band director telling me, you know, the first time I sort of ran into all the kids who made Allstate Band, there was a trumpet player who lived across town and our crosstown, you know, rival, and he went to our crosstown rival high school. And I just, I was kind of, you know, annoyed by how arrogant he seemed about his abilities. And, you know, the, Funny thing was my band director said, I, I need to tell you this, but that is the attitude that you're going to find in every one of these people. They don't believe that they're bad. They believe they're good and they believe that they're here to make all state band and it's inevitable. Um, and that, you know, sort of it raises a, a question about this confidence idea. So Chris Saka, the venture capitalist, when he has been interviewed, there's one thing that he will say over and over about the people that uh, he invests in as founders, and it's that they believe that their success is inevitable. And I wonder uh, if you think that that belief can be developed, and if so, how? Wow, that's a it's a, a interesting question, and I, I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, it's look, I struggle still with call it the imposter syndrome, uh, but I, you know, it, it's for me, it's and, and but here's the, I guess the the thing is. If people are really honest with themselves, because I've had a conversation, I've been studying the imposter syndrome now for over 20 years. And I mean, it's become vogue now, but I've, I've been, you know, going back to the early days of some of this. I know it first came out in the seventies, but one of the things that I've had, I've talked to a lot of people, like household names of people, people that are business icons, some of the most influential people in the world. And I would ask them, do you have the imposter syndrome? And they said, absolutely. I can't believe every day that people think I'm as great as they think I am. And it's, and, it, <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a, and the thing with the imposter syndrome is it's not about a lack of confidence. It's, it's the gap. It's the gap between how others see you and how you see yourself. And the more successful you become, well, what happens in some cases is the, speed at which the outside world starts buying into who you are versus the speed at which you buy internally gets out of whack. And the bigger the gap between how the world sees you and how you see yourself, that's the imposter syndrome. That's where I struggle. I know, look, I know I do good work. I know that I make a huge impact in the world. I know, you know, I will be successful at things. But then when I hear people say them some things about me, I'm like, it doesn't sound like it's me. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I, I may have told this story before. I remember we had a vendor who was looking at translating our content into different languages using an AI tool. And she heard a few episodes and she was like, you must be the most self-actualized person in the world. I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm like, I do this work because I'm probably one of the most fucked up people you'll ever meet. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's all of this is an attempt to solve my own issues. I'm far from that self-actualized. Uh, one thing I wonder is, is, you know, you mentioned your parents, what, uh, what did they do for work and how, what did they tell you about making your way in the world? So my mother decided she was, uh, interior, uh, went to school originally for interior design, interior decorating, I know there's a distinction between the two and I probably got it wrong, but uh, she was getting a degree in that. And then she had me and decided to, you know, take care of me. But what she's done throughout pretty much her entire life, which I've always loved and I've just found so uh, incredible is that although she's uh, not, she's not really had a job, but she's done volunteer work for as long as I can remember, whether it's going to the VA hospital and working with uh 
patients there or going to retirement communities and running activity centers. And, you know, I just, I love how she really, I, I just see how she, her creativity and just her passion for those types of things is something that's always inspired me. And then my father, he, you know, it was interesting. My father, uh, you know, basically worked pretty much for the same company his entire life. I mean, out of college, worked for a company, stayed there, eventually left the company shortly after, worked for another company. And that company was bought by the original company or the company went to bought his original company. So he was with the same company pretty much entire business career. And when I look at what I've done, you know, it's almost like in some respects, the antithesis of that, because I went right out of college into consulting, which meant that I wasn't in an office. I was on the road hundred percent of the time. And then when I left consulting, I became a professional speaker and advisor and I'm on till now planes all the time. So it's interesting. I, I don't know whether it was like, I looked at that and said, I like to do something different, whether it was just maybe part of my DNA to begin with. I don't know, but it's, it's interesting to look back at these decisions that we make. Yeah. Okay. So in, uh, given that, you know, we're, we're here talking about, you know, goal-free living, um, I think one of the things I wonder is what your parents taught you about goals, because I know from, you know, reading your bio that you, you went to Cornell, uh, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad. So you and I both know that you don't do things like that if you are not ambitious enough to set goals. And it's almost a, a paradox to have done, you know, those kinds of things in your life. So what did they teach you about goals? And, and, you know, what is it in the world that caused you to arrive at this thesis of goal-free living? Well, I think going back to my parents for a moment, I just remember there's two things that they always said to me. They said, you can do absolutely anything you want to do with your life. But there are two things, and they said this when I was young, there's two things that we expect of you. One, you're going to go to college and graduate. We don't care what college, we don't care what degree, you're just going to get a degree and you're going to get bar mitzvahed. So those are the only two things that they said I had to do. Now, they wanted me to do well in school, uh, but I don't, but they, they weren't, what's nice is they didn't say, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to do this, you're going to do that, or you have to go here, or you have to do, it was like, I really felt like I had that latitude, that freedom to be able to choose and, and find what's right for me rather than what might've been right for them. And I think that's probably been a huge influence on me in many respects is I had to make my decisions. They would help me make decisions if I wanted help. But in most cases, I, you know, chose the path that I chose. And I think that probably is why at some level, this whole goal-free living philosophy just, you know, really resonates with me. Well, okay. So uh, like I said, I think that this kind of flies in the face of, you know, a good amount of the the wisdom that we have uh, about personal development. And I think that, you know, people hear the idea of goal-free living. The first thought is, oh, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing all day. Um, I don't have to think about the future. And so what I wonder is, is, you know, given that you've accomplished what you have, how in the world does something like that even happen if you don't have goals? Because I, I relate to the, the whole, you know, sort of, you know, do, you know, what you're told thing is Indian culture is very similar to Jewish culture based on, you know, what I've learned from many of the Jewish podcast guests that we've had here. And you may, you mentioned something else. And that was, you said that, uh, you know, 
you decided to do what's best for you. And I think so many people don't do that. They actually let the world around them influence them when it comes to, you know, the things that they make important in their lives, uh, you know, whether it's parents, peers, media, society, whatever it is. So let's talk about that first. Why is it that we're so influenced by the world around us when it comes to what we value in our lives? Yeah, you know, it, that, that was one of the things which I did uh, for research with Goal Free Living is I did a number of different pieces of research. And one of them was just sort of this quiz. And I don't have the the, the statistics right in front of me, but, uh, you know, it's like how many people are really living a life of their own design, their own choosing versus it being heavily influenced by what their parents had done or what society had uh, expected of them or what their family, their their spouse expects of them. And in most cases, people were making decisions not based on their own wants, needs, and desires, but rather on external factors. Uh, and it's sometimes there's a need to do that. But I think that what ends up happening is we don't really tap into our, our God-given abilities. Our, our, you know, there are certain things that we are just so amazing at that if we don't tap into that, it's just a, it's a shame. Mm hmm. So let's let's talk about this idea of you can be do or have anything you want, because I, you know, I think as I was telling you here, I think that that idea is very nuanced and I think it's misguided when people take it literally, because the truth is, I mean, you pointed out yourself, uh, you and I were never going to play professional basketball, uh, which is the example that I always come back to. And I, I had a mentor who was here. And one thing that I really appreciate that he said is that people often think about what's possible, but they don't ever consider what's probable. And as a result, they set really sort of wildly ambitious goals that they're never going to accomplish. And then they, they're left kind of scratching their heads. And I think that, you know, personal development literature in general is guilty of perpetuating this. Um, and you have a really interesting lens on this that most people don't. So how do you how do you resolve that paradox of, you know, we can be do or have anything we want. And then, you know, in reality, we can't. Well, I, you know, it was funny. If you didn't mention the basketball example, I would have said the same thing because there's no way I was destined to be an NBA player. Uh, I think, you know, there are things that we can move directionally towards. And I, I want to just you know, be clear. When I say goal-free living, I'm not saying you don't have goals. And more accurately, what, what I believe you should have is aspirations. And aspirations, even though you might think that from a linguistic perspective, they're the same, they're actually quite a bit different. So goals are really about overcoming barriers, obstacles, and hindrances. So if you think about football for a moment. You, the goal is to get to the goal line and get through the, you know, the 300 pound linebacker to get there. So it's about hard work getting to a destination, whereas aspiration comes from the Latin word for spirit or inspire, and it means to breathe life into. And so when I describe goal-free living, it's not that you don't have goals and it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, aspire to different things, but it's about having a sense of direction, not a specific destination. And then you meander with purpose. And so okay. it's still about moving forward. It's still about direction. It's still about taking action. But it's not being so myopically and narrowly focused on one particular point. Mm -hmm. So I, I love this because I, I think that, you know, if there's anything that uh, doing creative work has taught me for 10 years is it's the path of any creative person uh, or anybody who does anything that just doesn't fall into sort of, you know, conventional jobs or careers, their path is almost never linear. 
And what I wonder is, why is it that you, you make this distinction between a direction and a destination? And I think people set course for a destination really early in life. And, you know, I, I was writing this new book and, and I said, you know, life plans are like, you know, fortune cookies. You have no idea what's going to be inside. So it's kind of ludicrous that we make these really huge life plans because I very distinctly remember a conversation I had. I was an intern at Sun Microsystems this summer after my junior year at Berkeley back in the day when people would actually hire me for a job. Um, and I went to meet with this guy on a sales team because uh, they had this you know, sales program called the best of the best, which was basically a training program for young you know, undergrads who had just got out of college. And I, if I remember correctly, he was probably 25. He had just had a baby and he looked at me and said, I bet you have this huge grand plan for your life. And I'm here to tell you none of it will go according to plan. And God, how right he was, <laughs> you know, looking back. So I wonder, why do you think that we choose a destination as opposed to a direction? I think partly it's because society tells us that. The self-help books tell us that. We need to have goals. We need to have ambition. We need to have direction. I mean, so all the things that we're told, uh, but I, I think also part of it is, you know, because people always ask you, where do you want to be in five years? I remember somebody asked me that once. It's like, where do you want to be in five years? Like, I haven't a clue. I mean, I, was like, I don't know where I'm going to be five weeks from now. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, you know, I don't, and, and, and this person was getting frustrated. He's like, come on, you got to have an idea of where you want to be. It's like, I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I couldn't really articulate much more than that. And, and this was really sort of at the earliest stages of the goal free living book coming to fruition. Uh, because I remember talking with somebody and, and they were, we we're having a conversation and, and they're like, Steve, People are going to try to tell you to have goals, but I picture you as like a frog in a lily pad and you're just going to hang out there. You're going to sun on that lily pad. And then at some point you're going to decide time to move to the next lily pad. You hop to the next lily pad and that's going to move you through life. And it's not a straight line, but it's rather that meandering with purpose. That's my term, the meandering with purpose, but that's how I sort of visualize things. And I think what happens is we take comfort. I think goals give us comfort, but then they also give us dissatisfaction it gives us comfort because we know where we're going. I think we just don't like ambiguity. So saying yeah. I'm going to be here in five years makes us feel like, okay, I'm on the path towards something. The problem is most people fail to achieve their goals. So then they set another goal and they fail to achieve that. Or if they achieve the goal, well, that goal no longer motivates them. And so we end up in this perpetual cycle of either disappointment or setting another goal, hoping we get that high, as opposed to actually just experiencing life and letting life unfold as we get more information because we have so little understanding of the world around us for any person at any point to choose what they think they're going to be doing down the line is based on just such a small percentage of the data that's out there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, that's the that's the funny thing I, I think about, you know, when, when people, you know, start college. I remember we had a Stanford professor, Tina Seelig here, and she said, you know, she gets two groups of students, those who come in with this very clear idea of exactly what they're going to do with their life and, and how it's all going to pan out. And those who don't have a clue and those people are all worried. And she said, in, in the long run, those people actually end up having the most interesting experiences because they explore. And I, I think the data point thing is really fascinating because I think that people make these huge decisions without collecting any data points. You know, it's that whole, you can only connect the dots looking backwards thing. But the thing is, you have to collect the dots going forward if you're going to connect the dots. And uh, so I wonder why your way of thinking is not more prevalent in our education system. And I'm curious, like what you if you were given an opportunity based on this philosophy to go into the education system and redesign it would change. I think part of our challenge is standardized testing. And, you know, if, if you understand the way that school systems are built, they're really, you know, about turning out people who are actually very similar. Uh, to fit particular industrial uh, needs in terms of production. And so I think that's, you know, and there's a lot of people who've written ab about that. Uh, and I think what ends up happening is though, is we, we lose our creativity. I mean, there's so many studies that have been done in terms of, you know, 
One study said that we're at our peak of creativity with 98% of us being highly creative at five years old, yet by the time we're 25, it's down to 2%. Mm -hmm. So education beats it out of us. Uh, and, and here's what was really, you know, fascinating to me coming back to something you said earlier is, so I didn't set out to write a book on goal-free living. That was never my intention. My first book was on corporate innovation and I wanted my second book to be on personal innovation. You know, and so what I decided to do is I hopped in my car and I drove across the country, 90 days, 11,000 miles, met 150 different people in my Purpose was to interview as many really creative, interesting individuals, very similar to the people you have on your podcast here. And so I wanted just to meet people you wouldn't normally meet, but people who lived life a little differently, creative. And so I came up with a list of about uh, 10 different attributes of these creative individuals. And the book was going to be on how to live a creative life. And when I, when people looked at the list, one of the items on that list was, you know, they didn't have goals or they had a different relationship to goals. And everybody who would look at the early versions of the book, the draft would say, this is the key. This is the interesting concept. And so that actually emerged as the overall and overarching theme of the book. So yeah. creative people are different. Well, it, it's funny you say that. I have a, a good friend who has been a longtime listener. He's actually been, you know, the, the guest host here and interviewed me a handful of times named Matt Monroe. And he has one of the most interesting lives that anybody his age could possibly have. Like, and he said, I don't have goals. He said, I, you know, have a list. Of, I have a worldview and it's simple. I want to go interesting places, do interesting things and meet interesting people. And I thought about that and I said, that is so much more expansive than a goal because it just opens up so many more possibilities. Well, absolutely. It, it's why, and it, it's sort of in vogue now. Uh, but one of the things that when it comes to New Year's Eve, we all set resolutions. Well, resolutions are just goals. I mean, that's all they are. And in mm -hmm. most cases, we say, I want to make X number of dollars, or I want to lose this amount of weight, or I want to cut my smoking down or X or whatever. And so we set very, you know, the smart goals, those specific measurable goals. <laughs> right, uh, right. And my studies show that 92% of the people that we interviewed, and this was actually mathematically validated, 92% uh, of the people had failed in achieving goals uh, at least once, their New Year's resolutions at least once, and there were like 50% of the people had never achieved any of their goals. So, it, so that's why I love to set themes. To me, the theme is, what's the word? So like my theme for 2021 is ongoing relationships. How do I build with my clients instead of a transactional one-and-done type of relationship, which is the nature of a lot of speeches, mm -hmm. I really want to take every speech and turn it into an ongoing relationship. How can I make the greatest impact, especially now where people need real results? They don't need inspiration. They need real results. Well, how do I do that? And that's mm -hmm. what I do. And, and it unfolds. And sometimes it's a bad theme and I change my theme. It doesn't have to be yearly. But that that whole idea of something broader that encompasses, that allows you to see new opportunities that probably would have been in your blind spots. I think it's so powerful. Yeah. So the, I, I'm glad you, you brought up the research. So I, I wonder when you contrast the research, uh, what have the studies shown? Am I outside of the 92%? Like what else have you seen with the people who set goals versus the ones who embrace this goal, free living philosophy? And the other thing I wonder is where have you had resistance to this idea? Because if you look at any company, right? Companies are driven by metrics, you know, like objectives and key results, revenue, you know, we measure traffic and subscribers. So in a world that's, you know, driven almost entirely by metrics, 
uh, as opposed to meaning, how do you resolve that paradox? Like, what is the first off, let's just say, you know, what does the research show and where have you hit points of resistance to this idea? So I think, first of all, there's a difference between the individual and a corporation. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that distinction. A lot of the work about this was really about how does an individual not set goals? Mm-hmm. Companies are slightly different, but I think some of the concepts still apply, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. Uh, so here's, I guess, the, the fascinating thing is, why do we set goals? If you look at the meta reason for setting a goal, it's to achieve something. Well, the reason you want to achieve something is because you believe it's going to make you happier. And here was the bottom line, fundamental bottom line of my research is the people who achieved their goals, the people who set goals, the people who didn't set goals, the people who didn't achieve their goals, yet they set goals. There was no discernible difference in terms of the level of happiness, except for the people who set goals and didn't achieve their goals. They were the least happy, but setting a goal versus not setting a goal had no difference between their happiness. And if you think about it, what that means is, okay, coming back to my definition of goal, hard work, overcoming obstacles, barriers, hindrances to get to a goal line. Well, if it's not a, if if the whole thing's pleasurable, if you're having a great time playing football and going through the 300 pound linebackers, well, then that's awesome. But a lot of people set their goals in order to have something in the future which they think will make their life better. Yet, I mean, we know this is true. We get to that future and it's not what we expected it to be. So we set another goal. And so we're on this perpetual quest for something that we will never achieve. But unfortunately, we believe happiness and satisfaction is going to be in the future rather than saying, how do I treat life as a game where I can actually enjoy every minute of every day doing the things that I need to do? So that's to me the most interesting thing when it comes from a personal perspective with the research. Okay. I mean, this flies in the face of so much of what we have been taught about this, you know, from the Brian Tracy's of the world to you know, whoever it is. I mean, like I told you, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you know, Oliver Berkman here uh, to start the year, because I just felt that he had a much more realist approach to personal development. And I think that what I see when I, I see so much of the literature that comes out of this material is that it's more of a, a sort of fantasy approach to this stuff where, you know, people think they can do anything. And, and we kind of alluded to that. But, um, you know, so with, you know, so much of this that, you know, basically flies in the face of everything that we've been taught. First off, like, why do we have sort of, you know, Brian Tracy out there saying that this is the key to like success? And then somebody like you comes along or somebody like Oliver comes along and basically says, yeah, look, this is not, it's going to actually not make you as happy as you think it will. And then, you know, a follow up on that. This is something that I asked Oliver, uh, you know, you know, I know that you will basically the goal will never make you as happy as you think it will simply because of hedonic adaptation. And the question I had for Oliver is, is it even possible to get off the hedonic treadmill? That's a lot of questions there. So I think the first thing that uh, I just want to say is that um, I think people, again, I think they set goals because it gives them some level of comfort and there's a belief that they'll be happy in the future. Uh, and and I, I I don't want to when I started down this path, I was a, I was, I was treating this as sort of a one size fits all strategy. And actually what I've discovered is the concept of goal free living appeals to some people, but doesn't appeal to others. And, and it actually makes a lot of sense as time has gone on. And I've seen who really does it gravitate towards. Well, I think the pe- the reason why people want the goals is because they believe achievement is going to be 
the key. And that's, but that's, that's especially in the U S that's our culture. We're an achievement mm-hmm. culture. We need to achieve things. Uh, but I think there's people like myself who I'm much more experiential. I would describe myself, even though I'm an engineer and I like process, I really, um, I really love to just experience life freely. So, you know, if you were to use Myers-Briggs as an example, and Myers-Briggs, I'm a perceiver off the charts, which basically means that instead of liking to plan the work and work the plan, I like things to unfold. Well, goal-free living fits in, I think, very nicely with people who fall into that category. Whereas if you're a person who really gets satisfaction of checking something off of your list, well, then this strategy might not be the right one for you. So I think that's the other mistake that we make is Goals are great. Goals aren't great. No, it's it, it, it really context matters. The person matters and what works for one person may not work for someone else. Okay. So you're, you're really speaking my language. I mean, con- it's funny that I think that's the underlying theme of my, the book that I'm working on. It's going to be a self-published book, but I, what I keep finding over and over is that context is something that really matters. We actually had a guy named uh, Sam Summers here as a guest. We haven't published his episode yet, but uh, he it had he wrote a book called Situations Matter. And one thing that I have noticed over and over, you know, throughout this entire process of, you know, building unmistakable creative and working with, you know, lots of creative people is that they tend to overlook context. Yes. And I think so we do that in general. And, and the, and, you know, the, the sort of default assumption is, oh, this, you know, really successful person said, he basically says they did this and that's how they became successful. So I'll do this. So this is, you know, what I call the outlier bias. It's, you know, and, and the thing is that by definition, an outlier is an anomaly. So they're not really a good role model for success. Yet, I think a big thing that happens is that they're the people that, you know, we write books about. They're the people who give TED Talks. And, you know, I wrote in the book, I said, nobody ever writes a story about the person who busted their ass for years and doesn't amount to shit. Uh, and that's part of where this contexting happens. But how do you think that people become more aware of the context when they're thinking about this, this information? So I think there's two different pieces. One is just to come back to the last thing you were talking about there is uh, I'm always fascinated with uh, survivor bias and its cousin, the undersampling of failure. I love the concept of undersampling of failure and that's what happens. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about is, hey, let's go do this. I mean, one of my books is called Best Practices Are Stupid. And the reason why they're stupid is because almost every single practice that people tell you to do for every person who claimed it was the cause of their success, there's a thousand people who will never be able to have a voice. There's a thousand people who tried exactly that practice and failed to achieve the result. So it's not necessarily a causation. Maybe it's a correlation. Maybe it's a coincidence. And so we're not good at being uh, critical thinkers. And I think that's a really important thing is to just understand that distinction between causation, correlation, and coincidence. And we tend not to do that. And that leads us then to context, which is uh, there's never a one-size-fits-all strategy. Anybody who tells you, go do this, I would immediately be skeptical of what they say. And, mm. you know, I always say my best advice is to ignore all advice. People are well-meaning, but it doesn't mean that they know you. And especially if you're coming down to an individual, what we need to do is understand what are their wants, their desires, their personalities, their needs. And everybody's going to be different. And that's what we need to recognize is just how do we get into somebody else's shoes, somebody else's head to be able to understand their needs so that we can actually speak to what they need rather than what we think they should have. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because you see articles, you know, on places like Medium. So, you know, my friend Ben Hardy, who's been a guest here as well, he wrote this book called or this blog post that has like 50 million views on it titled Eight Things That Everybody Should Do Before 8 a.m. And I remember asking him, I said, Ben, I was like, if somebody worked a 13 hour shift at a hospital, there's nothing on this list that they should be doing. The only thing they should do is go to sleep. And I think that that that's the, the problem is we look at this advice and it's not the flaw in the advice, but in our interpretation more often. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great way to to put it. Uh, you know, all I think all advice is well meaning, and in the right situations, it definitely works. Mm-hmm. But I think you know the the key is to uh, adapt what someone says, not adopt what someone mm-hmm. says. And we're all looking for that simple seven step blueprint. If I do this and this and this and this, my life's going to be perfect. As opposed to saying, well, this is sort of a it's not the map, but it's just sort of the the lay of the land. And now I'm going to be able to determine my own path rather than that GPS, which says, take this road and that road. Well, maybe I'm going to take a different path and maybe I'm going to go to a different destination, but I can at least be informed by all of these different uh, pieces of advice that we get from people. Yeah. Okay. So there are two things that you brought up, which I think makes a perfect segue to, to what you just mentioned um, earlier in our conversation. You talked about meandering with a purpose and being comfortable with ambiguity. And I think that that is one thing. When I work with people, particularly now you know, with investors, the one thing I look for is the ability to navigate ambiguity. And I, you know, I'll give you an example. We hired a community manager named Melena. She's a civil engineer with a PhD. She's like, Srini, I don't know shit about social media or you know, community. I'm like, yeah, you're a civil engineer with a PhD. You're smart and you know how to solve problems. That's all you need to know. Um, but I gave her incredibly ambiguous instructions about what I wanted her to do. I was like, I need you to build a listener referral program and I don't have a clue how to do it. And it was amazing how rapidly she was able to execute. And to me, I was like, this is the standard by which we should always hire. So how do people, first off, develop that comfort with ambiguity? And the thing is, I think when you think about meander with a purpose, it's almost sort of a contradiction to say meander with a purpose. Uh, I get what you mean. But how do people manage that without sort of just wandering aimlessly? Because there are plenty of people who wander and you know wander aimlessly to end up only going nowhere. I think that the key is that uh, when I say meander with purpose, it's the the first part to that, though, is have a sense of direction, not a specific destination. So you need that part before you start meandering. So it's like you have to decide, I'm going to go north, south, east or west. And maybe we want to be a little more specific that I want to go southwest, Uh, because then at least you have some guardrails, because if otherwise you will just you could walk around in circles. So to me, it's always still about taking steps forward. And when you take steps forward, uh, you just want to make sure that you're moving at least directionally correct. And then at some point, you'll figure out, okay, well, the destination I thought I wanted to go to really isn't the destination, but there's something over here that's a little bit further over. So it's, mm-hmm. it's more about having a peripheral vision rather than just allowing everything. Because I think what happens is when we, we set goals, we and especially when we set a goal and then we set a plan to achieve that goal, well, now all of a sudden we've got that blueprint, that roadmap that we tend not to meander from as opposed to saying, well, I want to get, so you talked about social media. Well, is the goal of social media to get more followers? Is the goal of social media to get more engagement? Is the goal of social media actually to uh, help drive more revenues? And if you choose one of those, well, you've now narrowed the possibility of what you could create so it's getting that right. It's sort of like the Goldilocks principle. You don't want mm-hmm. it to be too broad where you can like 
just go anywhere, but you don't want to be so specific that you don't have many options. Yeah. Well, so let, let's talk about this in the, in the context of companies, because you mentioned you know earlier that it is a bit different for companies. So, you know, in an organization, obviously, we we are you know using metrics. Unfortunately, nowadays, we're using metrics to measure our personal lives, too, which is, is kind of sad, given you know what social media has done to so many of us. Um, but how does this work in the context of an organization? Because, you know, I, if I I'm sure if I went to my investors and said, hey, we don't have any goals this year. Um, they would probably be like, okay, what are you talking about? But it's funny you, you mentioned this direction, not destination thing, because if you read Ed Catamull's book, Creativity Inc., he actually talks about that. He specifically says the future is a direction, not a destination. Well, I think it has to be a direction because strategic planning, as we've known it to be, can't exist anymore. I mean, there's just the, the pace of change and the unknowns and everything else. So you know, we, we, we want to know directionally where we're going, going to go, but we have to have the, the that nimbleness, that adaptability, you know, my whole work for the past 25 years has been around innovation. And when people ask me to define, to define innovation, to me, it's not about novelty. It's not about, uh, you know, developing something new. It is about adaptability and relevance. That's all that matters. If you're not relevant in the minds of your customers and you're not able to adapt to stay relevant, then you're out of business. That's the only reason why we have innovation. And so we need that nimbleness inside of organizations. And the more rigorous we are, the harder it will be to make those changes. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say, though, is that, again, it comes back to the one size fits all. Parts of the business you want to have running like a well-oiled machine, because you know, if you're in the logistics business and you're trying to ship products, well, yes, let's let's do things a particular way because we know it works. And if a problem pops up, well, we need to have that adaptability to solve the problem. But for most of the cases, we want to be able to handle them as efficiently as we possibly can. But then there's those other situations, whether it's, you know, the, the way that we're going to start introducing new products in the future, or maybe we want to start making changes in the way we meet uh, shifting customer demands. Well, now we can't use the traditional goal-oriented metric-driven approach. and and I just want to say one thing, because I think this is really important, is goal-free living is not about not having goals. It's actually about changing a relationship to the goal. Mm. And I'll give you just a really super simple example here, which is sales. Most organizations have sales targets. Their salespeople are told, this is how much you need to sell, and this will be then, this will determine how much um, compensation you get. So we did a, a informal study, but we did an informal study in a retail store a number of years ago, and we decided we were going to tell one group of people they're measured on how much they sold, and another group of people were told, we're not going to measure you on how much you sell. You're going to be evaluated and incentivized around how well you serve customers, and you need to take care of them and give them what they need. And what was fascinating is when we were done, the people who weren't focused on selling, the people who were focused on serving, sold more than the people who had the goals. And so we've, I've worked with a number of companies over the years where they even looked at how do we shift the way we motivate and incentivize sales teams so that they directionally know what they need to do, but, but it's about the relationship, not about the sale, knowing that the sale comes because of the relationship. 
Wow. So one thing I wonder, um, you mentioned changing the relationship to the goal, which I, I really appreciated. And I think that when it comes to goals, a, a lot of us have a huge sort of sense of attachment to our goals. So I wonder how you deal with that aspect of, of you know, goals when you're changing your relationship to goals. Like, how do you not let the whether or not you accomplish the goal define your worth because i can tell you i've had moments where i'm like measuring my self-worth in podcast downloads and book sales that's a recipe for disaster right yeah so i that that's the the eighth principle of the book is remain detached and yeah i struggled with that for the longest time because you want what you want and what i've found is that the people who are able to remain detached from the goal attach them to something else and so what, and, and the analogy that I like to use here is golf and I'm a terrible golfer. So using golf as an analogy, not a great thing necessarily, but it really works is because <laughs> uh, I do know there's, there's a principle in golf that you always use, which is you line up. So you're at the ball, you're lining up, you get yourself, you get your feet right. You get your club right. And you look at the pin, you look at where you're trying to go, but then the key is, so that's your goal to get it into the hole. But if when you are swinging the club, if you look at the hole, you will slice the ball and you will never come close to the hole. So you need to attach yourself to something else, which is the ball, you know, in, in Caddyshack, be the ball, but that's really what you need to do because you need to look at the ball. You need to attach yourself to something else, which is a present moment activity. What's the thing that I can do right now at this moment that's going to do the best uh, it's going to move me in the right direction. So by focusing on the ball before you swing and only looking at the ball, you'll have to have that trust that it's going to bring you to the hole. So that's to me the key. I love that because it's so similar to what I tell writers. I'm always like, don't, you know, focus on, you know, how many people read your writing, focus on how many words you've written. Like that's what you can actually control. And I think that that's where we get into trouble is when we try to control what we can't. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been really, really fascinating. I love this entire philosophy because it's just so different. I think that it gives people a different way to sort of think about this and not sort of a, a stressful sort of, oh, God, I'm a horrible person because I can't accomplish my goals, you know, mindset, um, which I think is just so much healthier and I think will will liberate people. Wh what have you seen? You know, you mentioned the sales team, like in people's personal lives, what have you seen as uh sort of like outcomes that have surprised even them and exceeded their expectations by approaching things this way? I think the, the biggest thing that we've seen is that people, you know, you talk about there's impossible goals, like being on the basketball team. Well, I think what people realize is the goals that they had weren't the goals they really wanted. And mm. if you live life experientially, if you live life where you're gathering new insights and you're starting to say, well, I like this, but I don't like that. I want to do more of this and I want to do less of that. And you start moving that meandering part. Well, you end up in a completely different direction. I've had so many people say to me where I thought I wanted to be in five years would have been miserable. But instead, what I wanted to do is I, I determined that I actually wanted to do this. Or in some cases, where people thought they wanted to go with their goal was the right goal but the path they were taking to get there ended up being totally different because I think in a lot of cases, most people would say, I don't want to achieve. I want the outcome, but it's going to be so much work. But then when they get really clear as to where they want to go and then they allow things to unfold, 
in many cases, they hit the goal, but they took a path that was pleasurable and enjoyable. And so it wasn't even about the goal necessarily, but the goal was, you know, just sort of that thing pulling them forward rather than them having to push. Mm, I love that. Wow. Um, well, this has been really amazing. I, I love conversations like this because you, they just make you think, you know, like it's not like we give people any sort of blueprint, which I appreciate more than you can possibly imagine. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I think the thing which makes somebody uh, unmistakable is when they are true to themselves. I really do believe that we're trying to label people. We're trying to shoehorn people. And when, and this is what my parents gave me the gift of, is basically saying you can do whatever you want. You can major in anything you want, but you just have to get a degree. Mm -hmm. And that freedom really allowed me to choose who I am. And, and I keep on correcting because I realize, well, I like to do this, but I don't want to do that. And that to me is that that really to me makes somebody unmistakable when they're truly tapped into what makes them special, their uniqueness, their differentiator, and they really play to that as much as they possibly can. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, and everything that you're up to? The easiest thing is to go to uh, steveshapiro.com. Uh, that's, you'll find all the books there. And by the way, Goal Free Living is actually like over 15 years old now. So when I wrote this, people were saying, wow, this is maybe a little ahead of its time. And I'm glad that people are now starting to, especially with the pandemic, where things are so uncertain, it really feels like people are becoming much more interested in a, an approach to life that's not, that's based on the fact that life's uncertain. So yeah, yeah just go to my website. You can learn all about me there. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.